Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. After failing to make a breakthrough against Britain in the Battle of Jutland in 1916, the German fleet returned to port where it remained until the end of World War I. In the meantime, Britain's naval blockade of Germany prevented food and war supplies from reaching the country. Its people were now facing starvation and their country facing defeat. However, Germany saw its submarine fleet as being the last throw of the die, so to speak. It turned defence into attack by targeting merchant shipping, turning the tables on Britain. Following the sinking of Lusitania in 1915, Germany suspended attacks on merchant shipping, but resumed such attacks again in 1917. The German submarine fleet concentrated their efforts on the waters around Great Britain and Ireland, where there was little likelihood of these ships being escorted. Anything that sniffed of military was considered fair game. On Thursday morning, the 10th of October 1918, and shortly before 9am in the morning, the RMS Leinster left what was then Kingstown, now Dunlera. She was bound for Holyhead in Wales and carrying 771 passengers and crew. She was captained by a 61-year-old Dubliner, William Birch. The 180 civilians on board were completely outnumbered by the number of military personnel who were also heading for Holyhead. These were made up of British, Canadian, American, New Zealand, Australian and Irish, either returning from or going on leave. As far as any U-boat commander was concerned, the RMS Leinster was definitely fair game. This evening, and 100 years on, almost to the day, we bring you the story of the sinking of the Leinster, and concentrate on a number of its passengers with Cork connections. I'm John Green, and you're welcome to this week's edition of Where the Road Takes Me. On the 6th of October 1918, the German government requested that US President Woodrow Wilson arrange the immediate conclusion of an armistice on land, by sea and in the air. Four days after making this request, it would seem as if the Germans were laughing up their sleeves when German U-boat 123 fires three torpedoes and sinks the mailboat Leinster. 569 of the 771 passengers and crew on board perish. On the 14th of October, Woodrow Wilson replies, saying amongst other things that there can be no peace as long as Germany attacks passenger ships. 
So it isn't difficult to derive from this that for a few days in October, as a result of the sinking of the Leinster, World War I peace talks remained very much in the balance. Christians all in country or in town Come listen to my doleful song Which I have just penned down Tis all about the wartime act That awful tragedy When the Dublin mailboat Leinster was sunk in the Irish Sea On the 10th day of October 1918 being the year The mailboat on her passage went I mean to let you hear With 690 passengers And 70 of a crew she sailed from Kingstown Quay for Hollyhead bound to In pride and stately grandeur the Leinster ploughed her way And all on board were of good cheer with spirits light and gay Not fearing that the U-boat was lurking neath the wave to send them all unto their doom and to a watery grave. The summer taken from William Burns' album August Destiny, his own song called The Mailboat Leinster. Well, like all mass tragedies, if you dig deeper, you'll find the personal stories of grief, loss, and hardship. Stories that are usually covered by general statistics. The story of the Leinster is no exception. And so in these two programmes and Where the Road Takes Me, we not only bring you the story of the mailboat's final voyage, but also how its sinking affected some families, a small number of whom were lucky, but most of whom weren't. Yesterday, near Court McSherry, a memorial was unveiled in Lislee Cemetery at the grave of mother and son, Mary and the Nicholas Howell. The unveiling was performed by the Bishop of Cork, Cloyne and Ross, Bishop Paul Colton. The memorial was mainly in memory of Mary's daughters and Nicholas's sisters, Ida and Henrietta, who were both lost when the mailboat Leinster sank. Up to two weeks ago, the organisers believed that they had Ida and Henrietta's story sorted. But this is a story that's not only interesting, but it also has its many twists and turns. First of all, the connection between Ida and Henrietta and the grave at Lislee was made, and after locating a website called Find a Grave, contact was made with a lady called Sue Sharp in Australia, who happens to be a great-great-grandniece of Ida and Henrietta's mother Mary, who is buried here at Lislee. 
The result was that the story of the Howells changed completely. Mary O'Leary is a historian with, as she refers to it, dual citizenship of Cork City and Cork McSherry, and she has undertaken extensive research into the story of Ida and Henrietta and their very confusing family tree. So now we have a story that spans three continents, North America, Europe and Australasia, and four countries, Canada, England, New Zealand and Ireland. Henrietta and Ida Howell's grandfather, father and brother were all named Nicholas Howell. And I hope your listeners don't get too confused as I try to tell the story. <laughs> it's a fairly confusing story. You have to latch onto it and pay attention, really. You really yeah. do, because as well as, as, well as the, the names, first cousins married each other twice during the story, just to make it even yeah. worse. And there was a bit of in-house squabbling as well. And there was a bit of in-house squabbling. So all the ingredients for a typical Irish story, if you like, were there. There really were, but a tragic end, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. So where does it all begin? It begins when uh, Nicholas Howell, who was born in 1770 in County Cork, emigrated to Canada. He married in Canada a lady called Elizabeth Wigmore, and she came, she was Canadian-born, but her family also came from County Cork, from Castle Lyons. They had two sons, Henry and Nicholas, so here we come with our second Nicholas. And the Howells and the Wigmores were among the first settlers in Pickering in Ontario, which was wooded country and the lumber business, that was that was what was, what was going on there. And both families were involved in that and they prospered. So Elizabeth and uh, uh, Wigmore and Nicholas Howell, they had two sons, Henry and Nicholas II. Nicholas II, when it came time to get married, he travelled back to Ireland, where he never had been. And he married his first cousin, Mary Bradshaw Wigmore, in the church in Castle Lyons in County Cork. So there we go with that. And then the bride, the bride and groom, as I say, were first cousins. And I think it's safe to assume that that was a made match because... They obviously had never set eyes on each other before the wedding took place. So after the wedding, Nicholas and Mary returned to Canada. But Mary's brother, Robert, also went with them, Robert Wigmore. Now, Robert had already been to New Zealand in the early 1840s, had come back to Cork. And then when the wedding took place between his sister and Nicholas Howell, he decided he might try his luck in Canada. So he went off to Canada with him. Nicholas Howell sold his brother-in-law, Robert, some land. And the two of them continued in the lumber and milling business and, and prospered. Nicholas and Mary Howell... They had five children in total. They had Nicholas III, Henry, William, Henrietta and Ida. Henrietta was born in 1856 and Ida was born in 1858. And at that stage, things in Canada were starting to get difficult. And by the early 1860s, it appears that that area of Canada had suffered complete economic collapse. Basically, all the commercial timber had been cut. And when the timber was gone, the economy went with it. Robert Wigmore, we'll go to him first. He moved his family to New Zealand, where, of course, he had been already, and he purchased land at Hahei on the Coromandel Peninsula, about 200 kilometres from Auckland, on the North Island. Now, this is an area of spectacular natural beauty. I was there myself last year, not knowing that I ever would talk about Hahei again after I came home. It's beautiful and it's heavily forested, but volcanic, mountainous, deep ravines. I can imagine what what it must have been like when we're talking you know, about the 1860s. Remote? Very, very, still very remote. You wouldn't get a signal for your mobile phone there, I can tell you that, even to this day, you know. Really, really remote. This Lee Cemetery near Court McSherry is not only obviously peaceful, but it's also very picturesque. People of Church of Ireland and Catholic denominations are buried here. 
The church, which is now in ruins, was once in danger of being demolished, but thankfully common sense prevailed. Here lies the body of Father Jeremiah Leonard, a Catholic priest who died in 1794, and a good man to pray to by all accounts. Here also lies Mary and Nicholas Howell, mother and brother of Ida and Henrietta. I'm joined here by Jim Crowley. Jim's a former crew member and Hansek of Court McSherry Lifeboat, and also one of the organisers of yesterday's event. We're planning this for a spell, John, and really it's um, the second part of, of World War One remembrance, really, because uh, two years ago we unveiled in Lislevain, we unveiled the um, memorial to the, at that time, 29 men, which is now 30, because we got another name last year, 30 men from the parish who died in World War One. We knew at that time, of course, that there was two civilians, the um, two whole sisters also died in World War One. We might have had it in the back of our minds, but with the 100th anniversary this year of the Sinky of the Leinster that put us going really on the um, holes and um, that's what we did yesterday we really remember them originally we were going to do a plaque on the wall of the church above instead of that now what we did was got the stone cleaned up and put uh, their names with their mo- mother who was buried here and their brother who was buried here his name was not on the stone but is now on it and they're both of their names on it as well so the family really remembered after 100 years really now it was Ida and Henrietta who were lost on the Leinster so here we are now in Lislee Cemetery and what a beautiful peaceful place it is it is yeah it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful cemetery really and as you, you look around you here today this side of it which is the eastern side really of, of it is all Church of Ireland burials and most of them are going back quite a number of years now there's some maybe up as far as the 1960s but a lot of them are going back well over 100 years and on the other side really is probably the Catholic side uh, I think there's one Church of Ireland grave there and that's more or less what it is it really looks lovely now today as you can see a very peaceful place and looking up at the church with the spire and the blue sky behind it it really looks very nice that would be a church of ireland church that was a church of ireland yeah. church yeah and um as i know i think that church was built around 1830 and that services held here up to about 1960 and eventually then a couple of years after the roof was taken off it the, the spire was left and they, i think they originally intended to knock the church but because of the spire being a landmark out at sea didn't go that way anyway so that, that saved it really This evening on Where the Road Takes Me, and on the 100-year anniversary, we look into the sinking of the RMS Leinster, the Kingstown, now Dunlera, Hollyhead mailboat, which was sunk by a German submarine close to the Kish on the morning of October 10th, 1918. 569 of the 771 crew and passengers on board were killed. What added a terrible irony to the tragedy was its closeness, just one month prior to the ending of World War I. The loss of so many lives was not only tragic, but also completely futile. In this two-part programme, we look into the backgrounds and fate of some of the passengers, most of whom have core connections. But only one of our stories is a happy ending, after a miraculous escape from death. And also, why was the tragedy seemingly intentionally forgotten about until recently? Part two and programme one will follow shortly.
When the Ennis Leinster left what was then Kingstown on the morning of October 10th, 1918, there were an estimated 500 military personnel and 180 civilians on board. Being a mailboat, there were a number of postal workers sorting mail for the UK as well. Usually that number was 22, sorting approximately 250 sacks of mail. World War I was still in progress, even though we were only four to five weeks away from its ending. No doubt but that these postal workers were well aware of the risks involved in these crossings, particularly as the boat was regularly carrying military personnel going to and coming from the UK. But this was a ship that was known for its speed. It was capable of reaching 21 knots. Surely it could outrun any submarine in the area. But in less than an hour, these hopes or beliefs would be dashed. Only one of the postal workers would survive. Dorothy Brophy is originally from Dublin. She's the librarian in the town of Castletown Bear in West Cork and also vice-chair of the Bear Historical Society. Her grandfather, Matthew Brophy, was one of the 21 postal workers on board the MS Leinster that morning. My grandfather was one of the postal workers on the Leinster. He was a Dubliner. He was from Bibsborough, from Munster Street. He married my grandmother in 1912. Her name was Molly Costello from near Thurlis. And they live in St. Patrick's Road near the Drumcondra Bridge, you know, the independent bridge, what we mm-hmm. actually refer to. They had been married from 1912 to 1918 when he was lost. And the story goes, obviously I, I wasn't around, but that she'd had several miscarriages, that she'd been very unlucky in trying to have a child. However, despite the great loss of her husband, Husband, it transpired she was pregnant and she held that baby which is a major miracle and that was my father who of course then grew up as an only child and named after his father so he was Matthew Brophy and my father then married my mother who was from Bera from Phylon and they had three children and I'm the oldest of those three. This was an era obviously prior to mobile phones, emails and all other sorts of modern communication methods that we are now used to but back then writing a letter was for many the only means of communication. So being a postal worker was an important position to hold and a very busy business to be involved in. Oh, yeah, everything, everything, all communication happened through uh, the post. You know, money was sent, communication, everything happened through that. I mean, it was, I heard somebody referring to it as the internet of its day. At the time, you could post a letter in Dublin in the morning and it would be delivered in London that evening, which is kind of amazing. It, it wouldn't happen now. But if it was posted early enough in the morning in Dublin, it would be taken by train to Dunleary, Kingstown at the time, put on the mailboat, sorted, and would be taken off and put on the train and delivered in London that evening. So that was an amazing means of communication for its time. So it was, a, it was very important to work what they were doing, you know, and the, the men were locked into the post office because obviously there was valuable stuff in the post, valuable material, money, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. in the post. And working on the mailboat then, was that part of his regular employment? Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah it was. It was. Um, I think they might have got a little bit of extra money for doing it because I suppose it was a risky business. But um, he was obviously recruited to the, to the Post and Telegraphs in the, t- in the day and uh, then work, that he was deployed to, to the Leinster with, you know, a 
there were, I think there were a team of 30, they could accommodate up to 30 postal workers on the boat at one time. On the day of the last, there were 22 and 21 of them were lost. It was a risky business because that was a very dangerous time, if you like. I know it was only a month away from the end of the war, but the war was still in progress at the time. It was, yes. Yeah, and they were very unlucky, very, very unlucky that it was just a month. I mean, negotiations were already in place to establish peace, but they were very unlucky that um, U-Boat 123 found them and hit them. You know, he, the, the captain of that U-Boat, he hadn't hit a boat, apparently. So his ship did their job, you know. Mm-hmm. Sadly, they all lost their lives within a few days, maybe a week. They were all dead themselves, you know. He was only 27 years old and his crew were 20 and 21, you know. So there's no, there's no happy ending for either side in war, and certainly not in this story. Michael Hall, like Dorothy Brophy, is also from Dublin, but is a regular visitor to Castletown Bear and hopes to retire there shortly. His great-grandfather, on his mother's side, was also one of the postal workers on board the MS Leinster on that fateful morning. The first torpedo fired from submarine UB-123 missed the Leinster, but the second torpedo struck the bow, which is exactly where the postal workers were located as they sorted mail three feet below sea level. Whatever hope anybody else on board the ship had of surviving, the odds on these men doing so was virtually nil. However, on this particular morning, Lady Luck shined her light on Michael Hall's great-grandfather, Jack Higgins. It was a story that was well known in the family and was occasionally being recounted, so I was fascinated as a child to hear that my great-grandfather, who was dead by the way, I never actually personally knew him, that he had been on board the Leinster, so I obviously had an interest in history and I pursued the the, uh, matter. I know that there were 21 postal workers on board the Leinster on that morning. 20 of them perished. That's right. Your great-grandfather didn't, so I presume it's fairly true to say that he was a very lucky man because these men really did not stand a chance. No, my great-grandfather, Jack Higgins, he left an account and in it he says that he was working in the registered letters section, which was an uh, an enclosed space within the postal section on the ship and that's what essentially saved his life because the first torpedo that struck the Leinster actually struck it in the postal section and uh, virtually everyone was killed. He does say in his account that he he did see one or two alive when he was trying to get out but they obviously drowned subsequently. And because of the work that they did and because there was obviously valuable material that they were dealing with, their position on the ship was a secure one. It was. It was two decks below. He actually tells us in his account that the um, the level of the postal section was actually three feet below sea level and it was a secured section. Nobody had uh, free access to it because it was the main mail ship between Ireland and Britain at the time and it was a secured area. What do you know about your great-grandfather prior to him working on the Postal Service and working on board the mail ship? Well, he was born in the Smithfield Market area of Dublin, which is famous as a, as a horse fair and uh, where country people sold vegetables to, into the, directly into the inner city. And his first job, he was hired by the Postal Service as a postman. And from there he, he went up the ranks and by the time he was working on the Leinster, he was an old and, and I presume that uh, there was quite an amount of work to be had on the Postal Service that day because it was, of course, obviously prior to the era of modern technologies, yes. they refer to yes. emails, so, etc. So there would have been a lot of work available in the Postal Service at the time. 
In pride and stately grandeur, there Leinster ploughed her way. And all on board were of good cheer, with spirits light and gay. Not fearing that the U-boat was lurking neath the wave, to send them all unto their doom and to a watery grave. As Court McSherry-based historian Mary O'Leary told us earlier, to study the family tree and goings-on with the Howell and Wigmore families requires attention and concentration. The two Howell sisters, Ida and Henrietta, were both lost on the Leinster, but their story spans three continents and four countries, including Ireland. Apart from the occasional in-house squabbling, these were hard-working, adventurous and pioneering families. You may also remember Mary telling us that Nicholas Howell II, there were three in total, Nicholas II sold his brother-in-law Robert Wigmore some land, and both became involved in the logging business in Canada. But by the 1860s, all the timber in that particular part of Ontario in Canada had been cut down, and so the area suffered an economic collapse, and both Wigmore and Howell's business did likewise. And so Robert Wigmore, who now blamed his brother-in-law Nicholas Howell for his economic downfall, moved his family to New Zealand and purchased land at Hahe on the Coromandel Peninsula, approximately 200 kilometres from Auckland. Although it's an extremely beautiful part of New Zealand, it was also remote, which Mary O'Leary says would suggest that conditions were pretty harsh here. He went into the logging business again, and in time he was appointed a magistrate for the whole uh, Coromandel Peninsula. And uh, I think that's an indication that Robert was doing well. As a matter of fact, from the lady in Australia, she sent us some stuff regarding the, the house in New Zealand, which still exists, the house that he lived in. And the man who, who came to live in the house after was a family called Harsant, wrote a piece about Robert Wigmore, and he called him the father of Hahe. And he described the conditions there and how they farmed without animals in the beginning and that Robert and his wife and family went out and dug the land, physically dug the land to plant the crops, wheat and maize, whatever, root crops, and how they grew vegetables and how they used a boat and his daughters rode 50 miles of a journey there and back to the nearest town to sell those vegetables. So seriously difficult. I mean, they were pioneers in the same way as we would think of pioneers on the prairies in America or what their father had done in Canada before that because that was difficult country. But the one thing about Robert is he still bore a grudge towards his brother-in-law Nicholas Howell and his sister Mary because he blamed them for the fact that he had lost his money in Canada and he had to move the family to, to New Zealand. And how right was he? Well, he wasn't really because yeah. Nicholas and Mary were in the same boat. They also lost their, their money, but they decided that they would move back to this part of the world, but they came to England. So we find them in the 1861 census and they were living in West Derby in Lancashire. We don't know exactly what the family's financial circumstances were because, to be honest, the census was absolutely illegible with regard to what Nicholas Howell's source of income was, his occupation. It just couldn't be read no matter what we did with it. But the eldest son, Nicholas, who we call Nicholas III for the moment, he was only 12 and he was already working as an office boy. Well, no, that suggests they weren't particularly well off at that stage. And then 10 years later, Henry Henrietta and Ida's father, Nicholas, died. That was 1871, and a census was taken in England three months later, and we find Mary Howell is regarded as a widow. She's living in Wallaceley in Birkenhead, again in the Liverpool area, and the five children are still with her. Her three sons were now aged 21, 20 and 18, and they're described as bookkeepers. And remember that because it's relevant in the minute. And Henrietta was 15, and Ida was 13, and they just lived at home with their mother.
Again, I'm back at Lisley Cemetery near Court McSherry, accompanied again by Jim Crowley. It's here that Mary and Nicholas Howell are buried, mother and brother to Ida and Henrietta. It was here yesterday that the Bishop of Cork, Klein and Ross, Paul Colton, unveiled the memorial to the Howells, a family with an amazing family tree and background. And, as the organising committee discovered, the further you delve into this story, the more amazing it gets. Although the church here is now close to ruins, it's not difficult to surmise, says Jim Crowley, how beautiful this building was in its prime. Fellas, I know, I think that church was built around 1830 and would have been, um, that services held here up to about 1960. And eventually, then a couple of years after the roof was taken off, the, the spire was left. And the, I think they originally intended to knock the church, but because of the spire being a landmark, out at sea, didn't go that way anyway, so that, that saved it really. Right. So the, the family, when they came here, consisted of Mary the mother she was a widow at that stage that's right Nicholas the son and the two sisters then that we're talking about on the programme Ida and Henrietta yeah Henrietta and Ida Howell yeah and their brother Nicholas yeah Yeah. the mother died there as as you can see on the heads on 1904 and he died in 1917 and then of course tragically the two Henrietta and Ida died in 1918 in in the Leinster. Where were they going? Because I suppose at that stage, well, their father was already dead. Their mother had died here. Their their brother had died here. So they decided to make a new life in England. Yes, that's right. Reverend Ford, who was the rector here in Lisley, he definitely was helping them. And uh, they accommodation had been arranged over in England Walton and Tim's near L- London and um, he, he was definitely helping them and their way they were going to go to this accommodation over and of course um, got to Kingstown and sailed and the Leinster and they only got out 7 or 8 kilometres when they were torpedoed and uh, they were among the casualties as you know the large number 565 or 569 that were lost in it Ida's body was never found and Henrietta is buried in a Mac grave in, above in Dublin Mount Jerome Cemetery in Dublin Very sad and tragic end very to, sad to a family and tra- yeah. It's a very sad and tragic end to a family who had travelled the world really And that completes part 2 in programme 1 it's a two-part programme on Where the Road Takes Me, which looks at the sinky of the MS Leinster 100 years ago. And a look also into the story of some with Cork connections who sailed on her on that fateful morning of October 10th, 1918. Part 3, the final part in programme 1, follows on in a few moments. Welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Welcome back to part three, the first of a two-part programme on the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the MS Leinster. One hour out from Dublin, on its way to Hollyhead, with military personnel, civilians, postal workers and crew, making up a total of 771 on board, the vast majority of whom unfortunately would not survive. Well, Castletown Bear based librarian Dorothy Brophy's grandfather, Matthew Brophy, was one of those working on board. 
The Leinster was owned by the Dublin Steam Packet Company and was contracted by the Postal Service to deliver mail to and from Britain. Matthew Brophy was one of the postal workers sorting mail in a secure area of the ship, two decks down by the bow and three feet under sea level. been a crew of around 70. The actual crew of the ship would have been working every day like the post office workers. There were military personnel returning, you know, after leave, going back to the war. You know, obviously we were still part of the United Kingdom, so there were Irishmen fighting as British soldiers in the in the war. So many of them were returning after leave and so on, or after injury, recovering from injury. But there were also, you know, civilian passengers, people going to see their wounded relatives, people going about their business. There's one, you know, example of a tailor going to uh, the Tailors Guild meeting in wherever it was being held and people going about their business you know civilians who uh, women and children who uh, were on board as well Am I correct in saying that your grandfather shouldn't actually have been working that day or on board that day? Or? Well so the, the family story is obviously you know my grandmother died before I was born his wife so but uh, relatives who were all long dead said that he had uh, swapped his leave he should have been working in September but he wanted to go to his wife's home place to Molly Rofi's home place in Thurless for the thrashing he loved going to her home in a place called uh, Clonbeg near Inch in Thurless and so he instead of being off in October he actually worked in October and oh. so it was lost. Yeah. There yeah. was somebody else as well who shouldn't have been there on that day. That's right the, the, I think that when they left Westland Row on the train there were 21 21 arrived and they needed a, a crew of, tw- of you know of 22 sorters so uh, a local man who lived in Dunleary was called on and he filled in and he lost his life as well. Michael Hall's great-grandfather, Jack Higgins, was another one of the postal workers on the mail boat Leinster that morning. So, does Michael believe or know that these workers realised how dangerous their journey was and the risk being taken each day to get mail to and from Britain? Oh, they did. They absolutely knew. He actually says in his account that that particular morning the seas were choppy and rough and that they had said to each other, we'll be safe, because apparently torpedoes had been fired at the Leinster before and missed and the Leinster relied on its speed. But on that particular morning, with the additional um, conditions of a rough sea, um, the postal workers actually said to themselves, well, we're safe today. Am I correct in saying that the, the Leinster was capable of a speed of roughly 21 knots, which was pretty, pretty fast? Yes, that's a, it was, I think, the fastest ship flying between Ireland. That's why it was partly why it was chosen as the mail ship. And the, the Dublin City Steam Packet Company had gained the postal contract based partly on the fact that she had that kind of speed. So um, post was delivered quickly across the Irish Sea. Connection has now been made between Ida and Henrietta Howell, who perished during the sinking of the Leinster, and Mary and Nicholas Howell, who were buried at Lisley Cemetery near Court McSherry. They are all the one family, Mary being mother to Nicholas, Ida and Henrietta. In February of 1871, the family are now living in Wallasley, Birkenhead in Liverpool, where the death of Mary's husband, also called Nicholas, is recorded.
Two of the brothers, Henry and William Howell, emigrated to New Zealand sometime after their father's death. I think it must have been very shortly after their death. They probably went to their uncle, Robert Wigmore, uh, who was prospering in the country. And when they got there, just to complicate matters uh, even further in this story, (laughs) William married his first cousin, Robert Wigmore's daughter. (laughs) So we gather that Robert Wigmore was still bearing a grudge and not very happy about the marriage. And the irony is that he probably had to actually performed the marriage because he was the registrar for the district as we had been told earlier so and the other brother that had emigrated Henry poor Henry he died as a result of an accident around the same time no the next part of the story is quite extraordinary as far as I I, am concerned you see the government in London was actively seeking people who would emigrate to Australia and New Zealand to build up the colony there and perhaps that's why William and Henry had gone originally but in 1874 three years after her husband died Mary Howell at the age of 50 took the extraordinary, brave, foolhardy, you can decide yourself, decision to emigrate to New Zealand. Her son William was already there, of course, and the other Henry had died. And Mary's brother Robert was there and he was doing well. So with her son Nicholas and the daughters Henrietta and Ida, Mary Howell travelled on the settler ship, the Dorette, which left London for Auckland in April 1874. The voyage on that sailing ship, including a quarantine at the other end, took 76 days. No, they availed of assisted passage, we know, which suggests that they had limited means. The total fare for the four Howells was £58. Mary contributed £14.10 shillings and the government paid the balance. sunk in the Irish sea Oh the Leinster now is sinking fast and she is going down and many too while in their bunks are numbered with a drown the passengers their lifeboats on unto the William Byrne with his song, The Mailboat Leinster. While German sub UB-123 had only been commissioned into the German Imperial Navy in April of 1918, she was under the command of Captain Robert Ram. She carried 10 torpedoes and had a 10.5 centimetre deck gun. 
Her engines allowed her to travel at 13.9 knots when surfaced and 7.6 knots when submerged. The submarine had a complement of three officers and 31 men. Up to October 10th, 1918, Ram's wartime achievements had been the prize capture of three Danish ships on July 16th, the Anine, the Constantine and the Hartholm. However, a ship carrying 500 military personnel in the Irish Sea would definitely mean medals or promotion or both for Ram. The contract for the mail on the Irish Sea was definitely a lucrative one for the Dublin Steam Packet Company. But the contract did come with problems attached. Despite weather conditions and the hazards of submarines in the area, the company would always be fined if the mail was late. The threat of such a penalty meant that the ship always sailed. But two ships were normally on this route, with a third based at Hollyhead. This ship would be ready to sail if there was a problem with any of the other two. These ships were built for speed and were able to cross the Irish Sea in 2 hours and 45 minutes. On March 3, 1917, the RMS Connacht, which had been commissioned by the Admiralty, was torpedoed and sunk in the English Channel with the loss of three crewmen. The sinking of the Leinster would be a far greater prize for Captain Ram, who was still only in his 20s. Captain Robert Ram's first torpedo missed the mailboat. His second attempt struck its target, hitting the Leinster in the bow. The third was fired as passengers were attempting to get off the ship. Two decks below and three feet under sea level, the postal workers, who were in a secured and locked area by the bow, were busy sorting mail for Britain. The second torpedo, which had struck the bow, gave them no chance of survival. All of them perished, except one. On that morning of October 10th, 1918, Lady Luck was definitely shining down on Jack Higgins. His miraculous escape, according to his great-grandnephew Michael Hall, is a story in itself. It is, and he's written in detail about it, and I'm looking at his, his account before me right now as I speak. He was in the register letters section when the torpedo exploded, and the ship was plunged into darkness and was instantly flooded flooded the, the postal section he said the stairs were blown away it, it was wasn't pitch black he says but there was a, there was a dim light and he could see um, wires hanging down and he, as the water rose he held on to these wires and it brought him up to the next level on the ship and that allowed him to get up on deck on solid ground so to speak and he picked up a, a life jacket and put it on him and then he shinned down a rope to a, a lifeboat that had already been um, deployed onto the sea and was full of people and was just about to push off. And he, he was the last, he says himself, he was the last man into that lifeboat. And that lifeboat uh, floated around for a while and uh, they were picked up by an English destroyer and brought into the Red Cross Centre in Dunleary. The wire he used as a sort of pulley to bring himself up to a, a safer level? Yeah, it was electric wire, it was just hanging down. He just used it to, um, for buoyancy to help him while the, the sea level rose in the ship. Of course, the, the Leinster went nose down into the water before she sank, and the stern came up out of the sea, 
and he said that when he was in the lifeboat being rowed away she actually sank and he saw hundreds of people still on board go down with her and that must have been something that lived with him for the remainder of his life oh yeah I'm sure as I said I I never personally knew him but the horror of that was certainly communicated to me by people who did know him and said that he, he was terribly shocked by it There must have been a concern as well, Michael, that when your great-grandfather got into the lifeboat, they had to get away from the Leinster as quickly as possible uh, for fear of the, what do they refer to, the vortex of being being sucked down, yeah. Yeah, he says that um, that, um, they were anxious to to, to pull away from the boat. He was the last into it. And in fact, no sooner had they just pulled away than a second torpedo was fired into the Leinster by the U-boat. And um, he describes that that second torpedo the, the stern was sticking up out of the sea with the, with the bow down in the water and the second um, torpedo literally broke the ship in half and it sank. The story of the sinking of the MS Leinster continues next week in part two on Where the Road Takes Me. After the traumatic experience of watching hundreds of people go down with the Leinster, how did Jack Higgins's life pan out afterwards? We continue to look into the very interesting but often confusing story of the Howells and Wigmores. How and why, for instance, did the Howells end up in Court McSherry? And why were Ida and Henrietta on board the Leinster? And we also conclude the story of Matthew Brophy, one of the postal workers who perished on the Leinster without knowing he was to become a father. My thanks to everybody who took part and helped with the making of the programme. Thanks to John Foote, who was on sound, and to you, of course, for joining us. Where the Road Takes Me returns in C103 on Sunday evening next at 7. But until then, from everybody on the programme and myself, John Green, have a very pleasant week and goodbye for now. comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.